All right. If you have your Bible, open it up in Matthew 21. You do not have to read out of the Greek. It's okay. I barely can. That's what my opening story is about. So that'll, that'll work well. Um, all summer, we've been discussing this uh, practical ways to draw close to the Holy Spirit, to better hear from him in our lives. And so last week we talked about how do we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. We said we invite the Holy Spirit uh, through surrendering to him. So it's not this just magical formula that we just say, Holy Spirit, we invite you in. And it's just like he couldn't, but now he can. But it's this idea of when we invite the Spirit, we surrender ourselves to him that we come to him and say, God, I invite you into this moment because it's not my moment. It's not about me. It's about you. Would you come, take over, be in charge, and we just trust you with it. And so today we're going to move on to this idea of asking the Holy Spirit, that we should get into the habit of asking God to, to help us, to be with us in, in all of this. And if I was just honest with you, and I don't know if this is me as an American or me as a man or me as some combination of it. I just hate asking for things. I hate asking for help. I hate asking for assistance. There's just something that's like, I should be able to do this. So my freshman year of college, in first semester, I took my first uh, semester of Greek. And, uh, you know, I, I made a B in the class. It worked out pretty well. All that being said, my, my professor was kind of like eclectic and you guys have probably encountered somewhat weird professors like that because some reason like college like breeds those types of professors uh and so this was like the guy that for our like tests and quizzes uh so he would put like stuff like translate the following and it would be theos zilla anybody have any guess of what that translates to come on you can take a guess Godzilla, right? Yeah, because where we get theology from, theos is Greek for God. And like, that's how he would do his quizzes. It's, he would like do like little puns and silly things. So if you could like at least know a little bit of Greek enough to solve the puzzle, you could get the answer right. Like it wasn't that hard. And so I finished, I was like, dude, Greek is so easy. Like this is going to be a breeze. And then the next semester, due to some scheduling conflicts, I had to switch professors to a different Greek professor who was not into the theoszilla approach of test taking. So by the time I got a couple months in, I had bombed just quiz after quiz after quiz. And I looked up my grade online. I had a 63, which is a failing grade. Uh, and I did what every 18 year old does when they face identity crisis. I called my mom. That's what you do, right? So I called her, Mom, I'm going to fail Greek. And if I fail Greek, I'm going to lose my scholarship. And if I lose my scholarship, they're not going to let me uh, come back to union. If I can't go back to union, I can't get my Christian studies major. If I can't get a Christian studies major, I'm never going to go to ministry. My whole life's going to be ruined. Any of you guys get phone calls like that before? So my mom said, it's okay. Take a deep breath. And then what's the next piece of advice she gave me, parents? Have you talked to your professor What's he going to do? Have you talked? What's he going to do? You know, his, his job, right? Like, it's just that instilled into my DNA. Like, do not ask for help. Nose to the grindstone. Figure it out and solve the problem. Like, there has been multiple studies that have shown that we as Americans are horrible about asking for help, even in situations where we know we need it. So there's a professional, her name is M. Nora Bouchard. She's a leading expert in corporate American leadership and development. And she actually wrote a book about this. It's called Mayday, if you're interested in reading it. But in her book, she explains how we are hardwired to want to do things on our own and be independent. 
And so then, asking for help makes us feel a little bit uneasy because it requires surrendering control to someone else. Here's the problem with that. That's not remotely how God sees us. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus expects that good disciples of him will constantly need to come to God and ask him for things. In fact, just here, this is going to be speed read, okay? You ready for this? Matthew 7, 7 through 12, and it will be given, ask and it will be given to you, and you seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil, Jesus knew how to end a sermon here. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything and they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified by the Son. John 15, 7, we're almost done. John 57, if you abide in me and the words, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. John 16, 23 and 24. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me, but very truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. (sighs) I didn't even like cover all of them. Like there's, there's more, but that at least gives us a picture, right? But when you just rapid fire all of these off, what's the takeaway? Because if I was honest with you, on the surface, it almost feels like what you need to do is, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember, I'm, you know, I get it, I'm young, but I'm still old enough to remember around Christmas time, my parents would give me the Sears catalog in a crayon. And they would say, circle the gifts you want for Christmas. And like the times that I would just, now we have uh, Amazon wish lists. That's just what we'd, so like, on the surface, it seems like what we should do is just like print off our Amazon wish list or our Sears catalog and just like make that our prayer list. God, this year I want and just start asking for it. Because that's what Jesus says, right? If you ask and you have enough faith, you'll receive. So God, I want this watch from Amazon and I want this new phone and I want, I have faith. And I'm just doing what Jesus tells me to do. And if you don't get those things, well, then maybe you just didn't have enough faith or maybe you forgot to include the in Jesus name part of your prayer. And it sounds ridiculous, but there are plenty of churches today that this is going to be the epitome of the sermon, right? That like the Bible does say more than once, if you ask God, the Father, in the name of Jesus, he will give you what you ask for in faith. But if if we just look at reality, I would argue we've all been hit with a reality where we asked for something in faith and our prayers weren't answered. So now we have two problems on the opposite end of the spectrum. And now we have this conundrum. Over here we have this American ideology that's like, don't ask for anything, nose to the grindstone, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get the job done. Then over here, we have this, look, Jesus told you that you can have whatever you want. If you just ask in faith, you you can have it. It's, It's yours. You just name it and claim it and he'll do it. And the Bible comes in 
And reality comes in and says neither of those two things are right. So how do we reconcile all of this? And we can't reasonably walk through every one of these passages, but I do want to highlight one that I think gives some contextual insight to what Jesus is getting at when he gives these commands of ask the Father. So let me just read Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 12 and go through 22, and then we'll kind of pick back up and move on from there. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He then left them and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And then we get Matthew 21, 22. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So I want to mainly focus on that last part today, but I think in order to understand that correctly, we need to set up the context of everything that's going on in Matthew chapter 21. So Matthew 21 is told in three parts, and every one of these parts, Matthew is going to tell you a story, and then he's going to either give you a direct reference to the Old Testament, or he's going to give you an implied reference to the Old Testament. Matthew does this all the time in his gospel. The thing is, we as modern Americans are nowhere near as versed in the Old Testament as what a Jewish reader would have been when they read this. So we miss so much, but there's really smart people that have went back and helped us tie all this in. Um, and so there's three movements. Each one tells the story and then ties it back to the Old Testament. So the first one is the big one we read over Easter, right, on Palm Sunday. We call it the triumphal entry, triumphant entry. And so this is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. There's ties to this all the way to the Old Testament. It puts Jerusalem in an uproar. I wish I could spend more time talking about it, but just for now, what you need to know is Jesus is making a direct claim to be king. Everyone in the city knew it. Everyone that was crying out Hosanna knew it. Jesus riding in on the donkey just says, I am king. So the king of Israel rides in, and what are the expectations of what the king of Israel at this moment is supposed to do? Well, the king of Israel is supposed to ride in, overthrow the Romans, kick out the centurions, form an army, and we're going to march on Rome tonight. So Jesus, as king of Israel, rides in, but rather than going and kicking out the Romans, he goes to the temple, and he kicks out people in the Temple. In fact, he kicks out, kicks out the chiefs and the, the priests and, and all of this other stuff that's selling. Do you see why Jesus got himself killed in this story, right? So that gives us to our second story, and this is the temple cleansing. So it's the first few days of Passover week. 
during Passover week, there's 150,000 extra people or so that's coming into the city of Jerusalem, and they're all coming in to, to make this temple sacrifice that they're supposed to make every year and to celebrate Passover meal with their families. And so everyone's coming in. The problem is when you're traveling from 100 miles away on foot or maybe on donkey if you have one and you have to come in, it's kind of hard to bring little Lammy with you to make a sacrifice, right? Because we all know if you're carrying kids with you too, that kid's going to get connected with that lamb and that's going to cause a problem in the family. So what you do is you just show up to the temple and right there at the temple, very convenient, streamlined, they got it where you can just go in and buy your sacrifice right there on the spot. You don't have to worry about carrying your sacrifice with you. So what's Jesus's problem here? What's that make Jesus so mad that in John's gospel, John says that Jesus forms a whip and like starts snapping whips at people. Like what is it that sets Jesus off that much because I really do. I think a good businessman, or maybe in this case, a good priest, might could make the argument like, look, Passover is all about the blood sacrifice, and we're just helping these people make it as easy as possible. And you know, Jesus, we have to eat too, okay? Like, we, we have to eat, we have to pay our mortgage. Um, so, so we're just, they get to make their sacrifice, we get to eat, it all works out. So, what is it that sets Jesus off? And I think Matthew gives us a couple clues. But the main one comes from verse 12. Jesus goes into the temple and he threw out all those buying and selling and he overturned tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. So Matthew wants us to especially know that Jesus is going out against those selling doves. So I, I know probably all of you were reading Leviticus last night and you're up to date on this, but in case you're not, uh, doves were the sacrifice that people could make if they were too poor to afford lambs. That's what Exodus Leviticus allows for. Hey, we recognize not everyone's going to be in a spot in life that they can afford a pristine blemish or unblemished lamb. So in that situation, when someone's poor, they can go buy a dove instead. The thing that sets Jesus off is that he sees this streamlined efficiency in the temple as downright extortion, particularly of the poor and needy. And so this causes Jesus in verse 13 to just go off and he starts quoting the Old Testament. It's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Now, your Bible probably has a footnote at the end of that phrase, den of thieves. That's going to connect you back to the Old Testament. Anybody just want to yell out what's the passage in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 7. Yeah, yeah. So let me just go back and read that for you because Jesus is referencing this whole passage. So this is Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. And the word of God came to Jeremiah, and God said, Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, and there call out this word. So go stand outside the temple and start to cry out, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through the gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien and the fatherless and the widow and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves, then I'll allow you to live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors long ago and forever. 
But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come in and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? So what is Jeremiah's point 600 years prior to Jesus' point? I think what Jeremiah is getting at is he's saying, hey, the temple looks pristine and shiny. In fact, you have people chanting like, behold, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's so pretty and shiny and cool. And look at our, our legacy and look at our nation and look at all we stand for. And Jeremiah comes in and says, God doesn't care about that. Because what you've done is ruined the place. Just because the temple is pristine and shiny, it does not mean God is happy. And I think Jesus is coming in and using Jeremiah's same words to say the same thing. Just because there's a simplified, efficient sacrifice process doesn't mean God is pleased. Now, Jeremiah would go on to say because of this, God would soon destroy the temple. And Jesus is about to go on and start saying because of this, God is soon to destroy the temple, which history tells us 70 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the temple was ransacked and destroyed by Rome. So Jesus is predicting this same thing. And the temple priests pick up on this reference because it's not long before the chief priests come out and they start to throw this other confrontation in Jesus' face and Jesus just leaves. But don't miss this context. Jesus rides in on a donkey, the self-pronounced new king, the same way of King Solomon. The people see this as exciting because maybe this means the overthrow of oppressive Rome, but instead Jesus does, in a way, the exact opposite. And he quotes Jeremiah, pointing out the fault of the temple and the upcoming destruction. Are you beginning to see why they killed Jesus? And then we get to story three, the story of Jesus and the fig tree. On the surface, uh, this story seems weird and out of place. I'll just be honest with you. Do you ever do that? You read the Bible and you're just tracking along and all of a sudden you're like, where, where did that story come from? I am, so this is how I felt when I first read this story. Um, but let me just kind of give you a, a, a picture. Uh, actually, I have a map, uh, Kelsey. It's a couple slides later. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so this is Jerusalem and the temple. And then if you look just... East, I gotta ignore where East, soggy wall. Yeah. So uh, east is the town of Bethany. It's about a mile away. And so Jesus is going to leave the temple and he's going to go stay the night in Bethany. And then the next morning he gets up and he makes his way back up this path towards the temple. Now this is relevant. We'll pick it up in a little bit. But if you'll notice, the little red path going into the temple is a little bit zigzaggy there. Do you know why it's zigzaggy? Anytime you have to go up a hill, it's a lot easier to do this than it is to go straight up the hill. So that's the zigzag path that would take you up to the temple. And that was one of the ways you could get into Jerusalem was through that temple. This is all going to matter as we, we pick up on this. So Jesus heads out of town. He stays the night. The next morning he gets up. He's heading back in. He stops for some breakfast at this fig tree. And uh, he sees that the fig tree doesn't have any fruit on it. So Jesus speaks a curse on the fig tree. It withers up and dies on the spot. Is it just because Jesus hates plants? No, he's communicating something here. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The disciples are amazed. And then Jesus turns around and he says, you can have superpowered prayers too if you'll pray in faith. If we cut the story of that, it's really weird. But put it in its context. The day before, Jesus had created this uproar in Jerusalem. It was a day of controversy and tension. 
And now he's walking right back into the hornet's nest. And he sees this tree. And on the surface, everything looks great. It's, it's pretty, and it's green, and it has leaves on it. It looks healthy. But on closer inspection, there's, there's no fruit. So Jesus curses the tree, not because he hates plants, but here's a chance to give his disciples an illustration of what's just happened the day before. Because can you think of anything else that on the outside looked pristine and healthy and effective, but on closer inspection was defective and fruitless? The, the temple. It is a one-for-one -one layover of what the temple had just shown the day before. Furthermore, again, we're whisked right back to the Old Testament where multiple times the prophets referred to Israel as a fruitless fig tree. You can read Micah chapter 7 for that. So Jesus has ridden into Israel the covenant people of God who are called to be his representatives to the world. He heads up to the temple, the place where heaven and earth are supposed to meet so that people can worship God. And what have they done? They've turned it into a shallow religious icon. And in the Jewish mind, as long as the building is shiny and the sacrifices are going up and the money's flowing in, then, then surely we're successful and surely God is happy. And Jesus rides in, asserts himself as king and says, no, everything is not good. And he prophesies in the words of Jeremiah 600 years prior, God will once again destroy this temple. So when the disciples start connecting these pieces, they ask about the fig tree, and what's Jesus' response? His response right here is, truly I tell you, if you have faith, well, let me go back. Um, Jesus says, may fruit never come to you again. And they saw it in verse 20, and they're amazed. And they say, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown to the sea, it will be done. Jesus says, the, the, the tree's nothing. You can look at this mountain and tell it to move. And the question with that is, what mountain? And there's some debate here. Can we go back to that picture again, Kelsey? There's some, there's some debate here with this, because if you look right there just south of Bethpage is a mountain called the Mount of Olives. So some people say that maybe Jesus is pointing to that mountain. I'm just giving you my opinion, and we'll ask Jesus one day when we get to heaven and figure this out once for all. But there's another mountain in this picture, even though it's not called out, because in Matthew chapter 4, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the Temple Mount, and that's actually what they called this little zigzaggy path up to the temple. That this was the mount. And here's my thoughts on this. Jesus has just looked at this tree that looked pristinely perfect on the outside, yet bore no fruit. And he destroys it on the spot. He's already quoted from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's predicted the destruction of the temple for the exact same thing. I think Jesus' point is, you think you've seen something amazing with what I've done with this fig tree? Let me show you what I can do when people think it's all about the way they look and not the heart that bears fruit. I think that's the claim that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 21. That this isn't some random teaching on prayer and how to do super miracles. 
This is a commentary on the brokenness of Jerusalem and Israel and the temple, which is really just a micro example of the entirety of the brokenness of humanity. That no matter how hard we try, no matter how smart we think we can become, no matter how pristine our temples and churches and culture, no matter how beautiful our exterior, no matter how efficient our systems of business and economy, no matter how wealthy our society becomes, no matter how cheap gas gets again finally, The absolute best we can ever do on our own is nothing but a really pretty tree that bears no fruit. We will only ever amount to a pretty tree that bears no fruit left to our own abilities. And what does a farmer do with a fruit tree that produces no fruit? Let me tie all this in together. What if Matthew 21, 22 is not about super-powered prayers that kill fig trees and mobilize mountains? What if this is about the deepest problem of humanity? The reality that Jesus sees displayed everywhere he goes, from temples to his own disciples, that Jesus sees over and over again, left to our own abilities, we cannot bear fruit. So how do we do what God created us to do? Because Jesus believes that bearing fruit outside of him is impossible. Listen, this is my whole point. This is where we'll wrap up. The only way we can bear fruit is through the God who bears fruit within us. So the only thing we can then do is to go to God and do what? Ask him. Here's my main point. We bear fruit by asking God. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in John 15. I read these verses earlier, but let me just go John 15, verse 1, going on. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. What's Jesus saying? You can't bear fruit without Without me, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and withers. They gather him and throw him into the fire and they are burned. Then he says this, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Jesus is assuming what question? That they would go to him and say, hey, we want to be plugged in. Will you help us bear fruit? That's the ask that Jesus assumes in these contexts. He goes on in verse 16 to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. When Jesus tells us we don't have because we don't ask, it's not about our Amazon wish list or the Sears catalog of all the things we should be circling and asking for. It's about pleasing God through the fruit we bear. If you want to bear fruit, if you want to connect with the Holy Spirit and live a life pleasing to God, step one is always asking God. So what does the Bible mean by ask? And we're right back to the point of surrender. It's where we were last week, and we're right back here again this week. Because what if the reason we seem to never hear from the Holy Spirit is because we're convinced that we're strong enough and smart enough and resourceful enough to to just do everything ourselves? That's what the temple's problem was. 
We've made this efficient. It's streamlined. Everyone gets to offer a sacrifice now, Jesus. We've made it so easy, and Jesus says, and you've gotten it so wrong. Because it's not about what you can do. Because what God wants from us is not, not our best, right? Do your best and let Jesus do the rest. That, that's not what God wants from us. What God wants from us is to come to him in full humility and just ask, God, I, I want to be a good mom. I really do. But it feels like I can't get over my own frustrations and my own anger. Will you help me? Be the mom you want me to be. Will you give me patience and love? Will you help me bear fruit because I can't do it on my own? God, I have no idea what to do about my boss. He seems so far from you, and I'm not in a place where I can talk to him about it. I dread every day of work. I dread every meeting I have with him. Will you give me the words to say to help this meeting go well? Will you help me point him to you? Because I can't do this on my own. So I call my mom. Mom, I'm going to fail Greek, and if I fail Greek, I'm going to lose my scholarship, I'm going to lose my scholarship, I'm going to get kicked out of school, I'm going to get kicked out of school, that whole thing again. She says, have you talked to your professor? And I whined about it a little bit, but then I did. I went and talked talk to my professor, Dr. Ray Van Est, uh, one of the best mentors in my life. I still talk to him regularly today. In a matter of 15 minutes, he had me connected with a tutor, giving me some extra credit assignments, and I made a C. Yeah, I passed, right? It was great. But I did that because... What was my professor's desire? As my professor, his desire was for me to learn the material and pass the class. He does not get joy as a professor and be like, I'm going to see how many kids I can fail this semester. I want to ruin their lives. It's going to be great. I'm not saying there aren't professors like that out there, maybe. This was just not one of them by any means, right? And the same thing is true for God. God's desire for you may not be that you're going to be rich and healthy and famous. It's not that you would pray through your Amazon wish list. But his desire for you is that you would bear fruit. And that is only possible through him. In fact, this is what the gospel is all about. The fact that Jesus came and gave up his life in our place as a substitute for us because we could not do it on our own. There was nothing in us that could produce any ounce of good that God might be satisfied. So instead, what God did is he came to earth himself and he lived a life of bearing fruit. Totally perfect, totally righteous. And then Jesus became the fig tree and gave up himself that we might know him and be redeemed by his grace and goodness set free by the gospel. So maybe that's what you need to do right now. You're looking at some situation. You're saying, I, I can't make sense of this. I don't know what to do. I've tried everything and it just seems to fail. And what you need to do maybe is just give up your own power and come to God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm asking you to help me bear fruit. I'm asking you to trust. I'm asking you to let me just trust you. And the same thing goes for First Baptist. Because let's, let's just say, just imagine, imagine five, five years from now, we pack out this room like Sunday after Sunday. We're running seven services to make this thing work because there's just so many people. Like it's, it's a wonderful thing. Wayne's like, please no, <laughs> not seven. Right? We're, we're just pouring out. And we look back and having wild success. So much so that people start coming to SBC's like, First Baptist Portalis, how did you do it? How did you do it? 
And if any ounce of us can go back and say, well, here's what we did. Look at the pristine chapel that we built and look at all the stuff that we, we've gotten it wrong. We've totally ruined everything. And it's probably at that point only a matter of time before Jesus walks in and says, see what I did to the fig tree? There he goes to First Baptist. Because we've built it on ourselves. And anything we build on ourselves, we can make it look really pretty on the outside. But it will bear no fruit on the inside. And Jesus has no purpose for a church that bears no fruit. God's desire is not for us to look really pretty. God's desire is not for us to have the most spectacular building. God's for us is not, desire for us is not to have really pretty exterior lives where we put on our masks and say, look at how happy we all are. God's desire is that we would produce fruit. And the only way that is possible is by coming to him and asking. So maybe we start that right here and right now. God, we can't do anything without you. Would you give us the way we should bear fruit? Would you live within us? Would you dwell in our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you be the one that bears fruit in our lives? By the way, that's why we call it spiritual fruit. Because it's him that bears it without of us. So maybe that's what you need to do this morning. We're going to have just a time of reflection, and maybe you, you need to ask God, not for a pay raise, not for health, not for whatever it is, but just the more primary thing of God, I need you. Would you help me bear fruit in this situation, whatever that looks like? And I just invite you to come and ask him right here and right now. Maybe you've never asked God to take control of your life, to be forgiven of your sins. And if you want to do it, I'll be right up here. I'd love to pray with you. But this is your chance to do that very thing, to ask God. Father God, we thank you. And we do come to you and ask. We know that we cannot amount to anything on our own. The only thing we could do to the best of our abilities is build a really pristine temple that in itself will bear no fruit. God, we do not want that. We want to be a fruitful church. We want to see life's change. We want to see your glory shine through. We want you to be praised and honored. So God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and give us the chance to bear fruit in your power that one, two, four, five years, however many decades from now, we would look back and say whatever happened was only because God moved. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.